0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so excited that you are joining me today for an interview with my friend, Michael Sabag. And Michael is an internationally known executive, advisor, speaker, and author on human capital, culture, and performance. He consults with companies on transforming culture and the people practices of organizations. Currently, Michael is also the Director of Training and Development at Sixth Rent-A-Car, a global rental car agency that is changing the way we think about transportation. He is also the author of the book, Developing Exemplary Performance One Person at a Time. And Michael has a master's in IO psychology and he is an Eagle Scout as well. Michael, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here.
0: Great to have you on. Uh, We connected, I think, on LinkedIn and uh, I pulled that last little nugget off of your LinkedIn profile as well. Uh, Not only have a book and the master's in IO psych, but an Eagle Scout as well. Has that served you at all in your career as an
1: adult? It does. I think it sends a message to people that once you um, establish a goal and really go for it, you don't let anything get in the way. That you work towards it and you can achieve that goal because only one out of every hundred Boy Scouts actually achieve the rank of eagle. Wow. And so it, it really says a lot about the individual, but also about their interest in preparing holistically for their interaction with the world. Because there's all these different merit badges that you get, all these different experiences. Um, and then the other part of that is stressing community service. Because you have to have a community service project in order to achieve that rank.
0: Right. Interesting. So, yeah, I usually wait until later in an interview to ask about greatest accomplishment. But how has that served you where, you know, can you give an example of something where you've really persevered and, and used a lot of that, that strength and perseverance to accomplish something major in your career?
1: Yeah, um, definitely have to say in writing my book, it was probably one of the most punishing processes I've ever been through. And anyone that's listening now and that's written a book has yeah. known that for years. It's a labor of love because I had such a passion around taking a positive approach to pe- working with people in the, in the workplace and really helping p- leaders to develop the capability of coaching people as opposed to just managing tasks. That single idea of helping people improve the way they work with others to enhance the employee experience and also to gain better better productivity. Um, that was something I couldn't let go of. And despite many, many rejections from publishers and other people telling me, well, just write an article and stuff like that, I felt like there was way more to it than just an article.
0: Let's talk about that book because it's, it is such a huge endeavor and labor of love. And I've heard that from other people. I have a lot of friends now who have books and I read a lot of books and I know that so much goes into it. And so it was such a huge challenge. Why did you decide to write a book versus uh, you know, just an article or something else?
1: So what's funny is at the time, I was a uh, manager of leadership development at Comcast and they restructured and I was a victim of that restructuring and got let go. I had a great severance package, decided to start my own consulting practice and developed a model that leaders could use to develop people. And I showed that to another consultant who's a friend of mine. And she says, wow, you really ought to write a book. And that planted the seed in my mind. And at first I was like, are you kidding? I'm not an author. (laughs) Me? But then I thought about it more and thought about how I could go into such depth in a book where I wouldn't be able to do that. In a summary document that I would give to a client or a framework or any other way that I can deliver it to a client. So that's when I decided to write the book. That was part of it. The other part is when I was consulting and when I've worked internally, leaders constantly would come up to me and say, Hey Michael, this person has a, a problem. They need training. And it really got frustrating because they thought of training as the silver bullet that would fix all of their problems. And I've heard that from so many of my peers in learning and performance, that they think that that training is just that magic bullet. And in my research, over two years, I researched the entire body of knowledge on human performance improvement, and I found that there were gaps in all of the models. In HPT and all of the models that are out there, there's gaps. And so I wanted to fix those gaps by creating a more holistic approach, but one that was really easy for leaders to use. And I found there's seven factors that drive performance in the workplace. And only one of those factors, the skill and knowledge factor, has to do with training people to develop their their capabilities. So when people are
0: coming saying, Hey, we've got this challenge, we've got this issue, people need help, people need to get better at coaching or giving feedback or understanding the business or uh, this technical aspect or they need to do this or that better, we need training. Uh, What you're saying is a lot of the time that's not necessarily what they need.
1: No, one of the key roles I think that a really good person in learning and performance plays, uh, mostly at the manager or above level, is the role of the performance consultant. To take that feedback from the customer, internal customer that you have, if you're internal or from your client, if you're external, and say, what they're really telling me is not that someone needs training, but that there's a business need that's not being met. And it's not being met because people aren't performing in the desired way. So let's drill down into the root cause of that and find out which factors most it cause. And is it an individual problem, which is what my book is about, developing individuals, or is it more of a macro-organizational problem? So is this something that systemically across our company, we're causing people to perform in this way because a specific factors at cause? So I can give an example. For one example, yeah, let's take sales as an example. It's usually a pretty easy black and white type of example. But if you have people that are joining that are taking a long time to get performance ready, and you really start to drill down into, into what's going on, if they've attended training and they know how to do it, it's not a knowledge and skill issue. So let's take a look at the other factors. For example, is there a process issue that's impacting everyone? It could be the sales process. It could be one of the administrative processes behind what they do in sales. It could be clear expectations and accountability issue. So do they clearly know what's expected of them? And are they being held positively accountable? So I use the word positive accountability as opposed to the traditional view of holding people accountable by watching where they mess up and letting them know. So positive accountability is where you support people, and that serves to hold them accountable to the results, but the intent is to find ways that we can praise and reward them. There's other factors as well, such as the environment that you work in or the environment that you live in outside of work. And the model that I have is the first model that really takes into account the person as a whole, takes into account that they have an experience outside of work. Mm. Uh, For example, when I was about to have my child, I have a son, he's 11 now, love this kid, like all fathers do. Right,
0: yes.
1: (laughs) That going on outside of work distracted me. I was not the best performer at that time. And even though it was a great event, transformational in my life, it still impacted my performance at work. Similarly, relationships at work, uh, the ergonomics, the way things are designed, your workspace is designed. All of those factors play into the environment that you work
0: in. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that's what's going on at home, how your relationship with your, with your family, uh, what's going on with yeah. your health, what's going on with uh, your career, other things that might be on your mind. Uh, there's so many things that can factor into performance. And when managers are not willing to dig into that to ask the right questions, then they're often missing half of what could be impacted things. So is that part of it? They need to be asking more questions?
1: They do, absolutely. And that's why I advocate that they take a coaching approach. So there is a formal coaching model in the book, but what I really like to see is when leaders lead with questions, and that's what I kind of say is a coaching approach.
0: If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast. It's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks and on to the episode. So you mentioned uh, the seven factors that drive performance at work. I think you mentioned a couple of them. Um, Can we go into what those seven factors are?
1: Sure. So I mentioned the the knowledge and skill. That's one of the factors. And and as a result, you can determine that they don't know how to do it. And even if you gave them a million dollars, they would not be able to do it. So if that's a cause, then you have to help them learn how. And that's where training and development comes in, and that's where we could determine what's the true performance that needs to be done, what modality would work best with specific people or specific populations that we're trying to impact and so forth. The other factor was clear expectations and accountability, holding people accountable in a positive way, but also making sure they understand specifically what the expectations are so that you're not just saying, hey, I need more sales, go do that. You're a lot more specific than that, and they have very clear expectations along every step of the sales process. They know the standards, and they can really self-assess and determine for each step in the sales process, how are they performing, and how do they improve their capabilities. Another was the process in the model, because it can be used at both the macro-organizational level and the individual level. At the macro-organizational level, we look at systems. Um, At the micro level, the individual level, we look at processes. So the process are the steps they go through to complete a task. The systems are a collection of different processes that all have to work together in order for a person to complete their job uh, successfully. And we're seeing a lot more of that, especially with knowledge workers these days, where there's a lot of interdependence among different areas that were previously siloed within an organization. Can you give me an example of what that might be? Yeah. If we take a look at at talent acquisition and the employee experience up to them joining the organization, within talent acquisition, there's a lot of processes that need to occur. So the first part of it is the employment branding. And so how are we viewed by the community as an employer? And these days, it's so easy to see through Glassdoor and through blogs and all these different uh, social media that we have, how an organization is viewed. Then that leads into sourcing and makes sourcing either easy or difficult. And that's trying to find people for specific positions that have the right capabilities and then determining their fit. And then there's the actual recruitment process where we interview and we have a whole process for determining whether or not the person has the skills and abilities and is the right fit. Once they're hired, then there's that onboarding process. And part of it happens before they even get to the organization with them completing all of the paperwork before they get there when organizations do that. And learning more about their role and meeting people maybe before they even start. And then there's that onboarding process of when they get to the organization, what's their experience? And that whole talent acquisition process up through onboarding is a system of all these different processes that have to work together.
0: Yeah. And they could often be, uh, you mentioned the the challenge of them being in a silo uh, versus them working well together. So you're saying all those different processes, if someone owns each of those, they could be doing them on their own versus bringing them together and having them working cohesively under one system.
1: Yes, exactly. Got it. Exactly. And we can still have specialization within that, that system. But at more of a leadership level, you need to take a look at how are these parts interacting and what's the impact on the process, the system, and the business.
0: All right. So we talked about the, some of that positive accountability, um, managers considering everything that's going on in the workplace. We talked about you know that clear expectations, the processes and systems. Um, what are some of the other factors that are in there?
1: So another one is tools and resources. But do I have the right tools to do my job? This is probably one of the easiest factors to figure out. Because either your computer works or it doesn't. Either the software works or it doesn't. Um, Those would be tools that you use. Resources are a little bit trickier because resources come in many different forms, such as, do I have the time allocated to each task in order to successfully complete it or complete it at a best-in-class level? Um, Do I have budget allocated? Those are really the two biggest resources, and everything else falls under one of those two categories in terms of resources, but the, the systems and the res- I mean the tools and resources that you have will really significantly impact your performance. And if my computer, for example, if I'm using Microsoft Word to create training and I'm working in a template and it keeps crashing, I'm not going to be highly effective at all. And it has nothing to do with my ability, right? And it has nothing to do with clear expectations or my process. Or even the environment I'm working in, it has to do with that specific tool.
0: Yeah, you get people poor tools, they've got a tiny little monitor or software that's not working very well, or an ineffective keyboard, or yes. they're just not set up for success. It's gonna be a lot harder for them to get things done. It could even be demoralizing to them and frustrating, and so they become less productive.
1: Exactly. And that actually leads us to the next factor, which is around motivation. And I, I just say next, because that's the next one that came to my mind, because <laughs> there's no particular order for these. <laughs> what really matters in taking a look at these seven factors is which one's most responsible for what I call a strength that someone has being at the expandable level. So if I have a strength in being able to do instructional design, why is that not at the exemplary level? Why is it an expandable strength? And so motivation has really two focuses to it. One as Herzberg pointed out in his model, there's the hygiene factor, which is more the basic needs that individuals have. And then there's things that are actually motivators. And the things that we found that are really truly motivating speak to a person's intrinsic motivation. The hygiene factors tends to be, tend to be extrinsic motivators, like pay, uh, having fair and equitable pay. You need it in, in order to be able to perform but it generally speaking doesn't lead to exemplary performance long-term. So what's really interesting about pay is that there's been studies that show that when you pay people too much, it's actually demotivating. And the reason is because they're of the imposter syndrome. They don't feel like they're worth it. And so they're, they're really questioning everything that they're doing, and it just leads to a lot of stress in the individual.
0: I can see that. Am I am I really worth this much money? It's a lot of yeah. pressure to perform and so people start to struggle in that environment.
1: Right. So as a leader, I tend to look for what are the things that people really want to be able to do and develop their capabilities in that direction. And it's always maybe I'm lucky. It's always aligned with what the needs are for the business.
0: Yeah. So if anybody out there listening is a hiring manager and you have to negotiate salaries to people, you just say like, I'm sorry, I can't give you too much money because I'm afraid that <laughs> you know, studies show it's going to make you ineffective. So we need to pull this salary back.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's at the extreme now.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, no, Of course. Of course. Um, so looking, figuring out what are those intrinsic factors that are motivating people because external factors like a salary or benefits or perks might draw people in. It might be enough to get them to stay, but it's not what's going to truly motivate them to be a a great performer.
1: Yes, exactly. Aligning with their why. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like Simon Sinek's, uh, both his TED Talk and his book, Uh, Start With Why. Yeah, Because that really speaks to the person's intrinsic motivation. Why do I get out of bed every morning? What am I trying to accomplish? What's my deeper why?
0: How do you figure that out? I mean, I think... I could be wrong, but I feel like a lot of people don't even know that for themselves unless they're really forced to think about it. So how do you figure that out for somebody else in your organization?
1: So um, I have, it's just a series of conversations that I've had with each person that I work with. And what I want to do is really find out when they think about themselves long-term, what's the impact that they want to have on the organization? And that always leads to the path that they need to take to develop their capabilities. So someone on my team really loves instructional design and wants to make sure that our design is of the highest quality. So now I know to to develop her instructional design capabilities. And that's directionally is what motivates her because she loves that area. She thinks that's the way she can really impact sixth in a very positive way. And it's very valuable to the team as well because we've been able to increase our quality standards consistently. Over the past year.
0: Great. Okay, so we've covered, I think, four or five of the factors. What do we still have left?
1: Yeah, so motivation, clear expectations and accountability, process, tools and resources, environment, skill and knowledge. Um, What we haven't covered yet is talent and fit. So, talent are the innate abilities that people have that are a function of their genetic and psychological makeup. So, let me unpack that for you. When I talk about talent, what I'm really referring to is how are people wired, which is only part of that. Think of it as a coin with two sides. On one side, you have the way that you're born. What are the things that you're born with? So for example, some people are really tall. Some people are not so tall. Right. And professions that require height might not be right for the person that's not very tall. Yeah, you can't develop someone
0: into being taller.
1: That, exactly. Exactly. The other part of it, and this is also where I differ from the literature a little bit, is that there's the psychological profile that that develops, your worldview. That's not something that we generally can influence in the workplace. It takes years and sometimes, for some people, psychotherapy to develop a, a different worldview. And that's not something that we address in the workplace. Fair enough. I mean, that can change. That can change
0: through coaching and other factors, but it's not something that's going to change from a few conversations with your manager or some you know, training and development program at work.
1: Exactly. The other part of that factor, because it's talent and fit, is my decision to use my talents in a way that aligns with the needs of my job. So, for example, I could be the very best salesperson in the world, but I work for a company that makes cigarettes and I sell cigarettes to convenience stores, which was great until my dad died of lung cancer. Hmm. So would I be the best fit to do that considering my life's mission now is to get people to stop smoking? You're probably not going to take that job. Probably going to leave that job. Exactly. Probably
0: going to leave that job, right. Yeah. No, There's no reason to try to keep that person because their values don't align with your values as an organization. Right, right, exactly.
1: So I think that we covered all of them now. So there's motivation, clear expectations and accountability. There's the systems and processes, there's talent and fit, there's tools and resources, there's the environment that you work in, and then there's the skill and knowledge that each individual possesses. And that really speaks to, can they do the job? They know how to do it. Got
0: it. Okay. So bring this all together for me. What's uh, what is the, the outcome uh, that someone can expect from reading a book like this? You know what, what did you want people to do as a
1: result of reading it? What I wanted was a clear path for leaders to be able to work with people on a continuous basis to constantly identify one exemplary strength, which is something they do best in class, and determine how to leverage that strength to share it with the rest of the organization in some way that's a benefit. And then also identify one expandable strength so they can continually develop people's capabilities in a direction that aligns with their preferences and the needs of the organization and providing a model for them to continually have those
0: conversations. Got it. Okay. I wanted to also touch in our conversation on cultural changes, cultural transformations, and I know it's kind of related to this. um, because I know you've done some work there with organizations. Yeah. Uh, A lot of companies I get in touch with that I work with are going through cultural transformations, digital transformations. I know there's a lot that goes into this, but what are two or three important things that People should be thinking about if their company is going through a cultural evolution or transformation to get their people going in the right direction.
1: So there's a couple things that I've found. One is that organizations rarely design aspirationally what they want their culture to be. So they rarely sit down and say, this is the type of organization that I want. This is the type of employee experience that I want. This is the type of environment that I want people to work in. So that's part of it. If they do that, they also, and this is the most important part of change, is you need to change the leaders and their behaviors and what they do and the way that they work with people in order to affect change in the culture. Uh, The leaders tend to be role models for the behaviors that are acceptable or not acceptable within an organization. And those behaviors are really what determines what an organization's culture is. Not so much those perks like free lunches and things like that. Those are great, and those tend to be nice-to-have types of things. But you can also have an environment where people are highly, highly engaged without getting free lunch. And that speaks more to the way that they're valued by the organization and developed by the organization and led by the leaders in the organization. And then I've found that there's a trickle effect, that when leaders start to walk the walk, then others see what's acceptable and others start to emulate what their leaders are doing, especially if they aspire to be in a leadership role.
0: Yeah, I I have found that as well when I talk to people who have been involved in a lot of these cultural transformations and they're trying to define culture. I had a great conversation a while back with Larry McAllister, the new global head of talent at NetApp about defining culture. And we talked a lot about the importance of that trickle-down effect, how leaders have to model that behavior and do what they want other people to do yes. to define that culture. It's not about uh, putting signs on the wall and, and putting on the badge and, and things in and the free lunch. It's about right. modeling that behavior from the leadership on down and getting those influential people on board.
1: Yeah. And, and it's not to say those other things aren't important because the signs on the wall are important if they're true to the employee. If they're just platitudes on the wall then it actually is is a disservice to the culture because then people become cynical. They say, we value our employees, and then they cut their hours or they cut their perks because business is tight at the moment. Right. So if you really value people, it's more, how do you interact? How do you treat people?
0: Yeah, do show it. Don't just say it, but actually show it. Yeah. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. Let's talk about your organization for a minute, because you you do you've written this book and you do some consulting, but you're also working at Sixt, overseeing uh, North America talent for this transportation company. I guess we call it now, right? That's a it's a German company, and from what I yeah. can tell from the the branding and everything, I
1: would imagine the
0: culture is pretty strong there.
1: It is. It is. What's really funny is I've worked in car rental before a long time ago. I actually started in that area with my first full time non-consulting role because after I finished my master's program, I did some consulting for a while and then I moved back to Florida where I was raised and uh, got a job with another car rental company. And it was kind of a sweatshop environment and I really didn't like it. It was very punishing. For example, the first time that I was actually recognized and praised was when I wrote someone up and I thought, are you kidding me? That's not the way we want to treat people, but that's the way their culture works. So I was kind of hesitant to get back into car rental until I, I found Sixth. And when the recruiter contacted me and told me about this role, I started doing some research. I started talking to um, a couple of contacts that I had at Sixth and found out what an outstanding culture it is. We've got a, a, a whole software development team because we want to be on the forefront of technology. And want to pivot from being a car rental company to being a mobility company. So no matter how it is that you need to get around, we want to be able to serve your needs. That's part of it. Another part of it is when I came in for interviews at the headquarters in Fort Lauderdale and everyone I talked to and everyone I saw walking around, I just got this vibe of family and friendliness and also high performance at the same time. And I think the two go hand in hand. So it was it was really the whole vibe that I got when I was at the headquarters that really drove me to want to work and be part of the success as we move forward.
0: That's awesome. And we think about your career, whether it's at sixth or overall, I know you've written, you talked about the accomplishment of writing the book. What's been your greatest accomplishment in talent development in either at sixth or in your career overall?
1: That's kind of a hard question to answer because you can take a look at What did I do personally? If I look at my personal accomplishment, it would definitely be writing the book. It took me six years, and I had six different publishers turn down, reject me, and I started questioning myself and questioning whether or not this was even directionally the right thing to do. And then I found my, my publisher. But I think what I'm more proud of is the team that I have here at Sixth. And the way that they've evolved over the last year and the way that they've grown professionally, we've gone from kind of a transactional approach to training, where training is an event and people come and they take training and then they go back and they're supposed to perform to really taking a look at multiple modalities within training, so more blended approach to looking at our impact on the business and really starting to track key measures in terms of productivity 30, 60, 90 days out of training and how do we impact that in a more positive way and really starting to not just implement best practices, but trying to establish next practices. So we've been there. We've got stellar instructional design processes. We've got a training scorecard that goes to the highest levels of the organization We've developed infrastructure in terms of systems and processes for within our team, but also within the business, I helped to develop a competency model that was approved by Alexander Sixth in Germany and now is going to be used throughout the entire company. So that type of infrastructure is great. And so what we're looking at next is, what are the emerging trends and how can we be on the forefront of that? And how can we really be setting the example, not just within car rental or mobility organizations, but for the industry? So that's what I've tasked our team with doing is really taking a look at those next practices, being at the forefront of that.
0: Yeah, that is cool. You're, you're in a, a, an innovative company that's changing the way people look at transportation and what they do. And of course, you have an opportunity to help develop the people along the way to be part of that. And it sounds like a great accomplishment what you're doing with your team. Flip side, what has been your biggest failure or mistake along the way and what did you learn from it?
1: It's hard to narrow it down to one. Uh, when I think about failures, you can think about it two ways. A failure is something when something doesn't turn out the way that it was intended. And so that probably happens on a daily basis for me. Yeah, And it's not that I view myself as a failure. It's just that things don't always go the way that they're planned. You can put in the work, you can put in the effort, and they don't go as planned. It's hard for me to put my finger on one specific thing that didn't go well. And because I've never thought of anything as a failure if I've learned from it.
0: Mm.
1: And it's probably has to do with my mindset in terms of having more of a learning orientation as opposed to a performance orientation. And when I've studied high performers, all of them, the most exemplary performers, have that continuous improvement. So there's never really a failure. right? What's funny is um, a friend of mine won the gold medal in swimming in the 1984 Olympics. And he would practice every day, five days a week or sometimes six days a week for four to five hours a day he was in the pool from the age of six until he won the gold medal at the age of, I think, 19. And all along the way, every day, He did not achieve specific goals he wanted, and he did well in other areas. So every day he met with failures, but he never viewed one day as a failure.
0: Yeah, failure is feedback, right? You're learning along the way, growth mindset. um, It's an opportunity to learn as long as you don't give up, you keep going. Um, But we all make plenty of mistakes. I like what you said. Failure is, is something that didn't go as intended. I'm sure there's a lot of people in this space that are like learning and have experiences to share. Maybe think about writing a book. And I'm sure there are many mistakes you made along the way with that for going for six years. What's something that you would do differently? You wish you knew then that you know now yeah. um, that you may have messed up or go the way you, you had planned it.
1: When I first started training, I thought, you know, this, this content is easy to understand. I can get up in front of people and talk about it and follow the facilitator guide. And I got up in front of people and I bombed. It was horrible. It was actually quite painful to watch. I was married to my facilitator guide. And I was at points just looking through and reading what I needed to do next and then talking. And what I really learned from that failure, because it was truly a failure, was that I really underestimated the amount of preparation that was needed to perform at the level that I wanted to perform. And I found that to be true throughout my career, that the times where I've had bad team meetings and we get way off track and nothing's accomplished and people start to get frustrated. It's because me as the leader didn't prepare well because I didn't do my homework because I didn't come to the table respecting their time by preparing for that interaction. Uh, Whenever I've not done well in class, it's because I've tried to wing it
0: (laughs) instead
1: of preparing well.
0: I can relate to that. Are there any uh, other trends that you are tracking in talent development, something that you think is really changing the way people might work in the future?
1: Yeah, there's quite a few trends, I think, that are going on right now in learning and development. One's been going on for a while, which is a trend towards micro-learning. Those bite-sized chunks of content that people can consume in a very short amount of time. I think generationally, with the uh, workforce preferences changing, The newer generations prefer to just take anywhere from two to five minutes, learn a very, very specific task, or even a step within that task, and then they are able to change what they're doing on the job. Another trend is really moving from the training environment to the work environment. So it's just-in-time development that's needed in that role in that moment. And micro training helps with that. So, for example, if I'm a rental sales agent and I'm in front of a customer and we have a coverage that we want to sell them and they ask a question I don't know the answer to, I can immediately look that up on our intranet, get the answer, and communicate the answer to the individual. But then I've also learned what the answer is for the next customer that comes in. So, that's why I think those two trends go hand in hand. I think the most important trend that I'm seeing though, and this is something that I'm trying to drive here, is more along the lines of the personalization of learning. So as opposed to one-size-fits-all trainings, which for new hire, that's definitely needed, but beyond new hire training, it definitely needs to be personalized and prescriptive, the word that I use, to describe what specifically do they need in order to develop and get to the next level relative to the tasks that are important to their job. Once they achieve those and they're performing at a high level, how do we develop them for the next role so that we have that, that bench of talent ready to move up when the business requires it? Love it. Michael, do you
0: have a book other than your own that has made a big impact on you or that you often recommend to others?
1: Yeah, I always recommend... There's quite a few books that I recommend because of I, I love to read. And so I'm always reading books, sometimes rereading books that I've read before. I also am one of those geeks that like books related to learning and performance and love to read our industry books. One of the most important books I've ever read is is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. There's so many nuggets in that book that just apply to everything that anyone does, that it was really a powerful book. I've read it, I think, four times now, and I always get something new out of it. Another book that I read was The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. And the reason I love that book is because it really informs as a performance coach here how I work with organizations to establish a healthy organization. So in that book, Patrick talks about the four pillars of organizational health and how the senior team cohesiveness is one of the most important factors. So in working with senior leaders here, I've been really fortunate that there already is that cohesiveness, but that's something that in other organizations where I consulted, that was a very strong recommendation is to work there before they work anywhere else in the organization. And that's even more important than strategy. Yeah. Because that really determines the culture of the organization back to our previous conversation about culture. If two leaders, like the COO and the CEO, are butting heads and arguing all the time, we're creating these divisions in the organization. And that's really not healthy for the company. That impacts the culture in a significant way. A book that I just started leading reading is Dare to Lead by uh, Brene Brown. Uh, it was very highly recommended to me by some people that I admire. So um, I have that book and I'm starting to read that as well. Excellent.
0: Yeah, I've heard great things about that one.
1: Another book for learning performance people, it's a really old book from the 60s, but I think that it's probably one of the best books that I've ever read on human performance improvement. And that's Human Competence by Thomas Gilbert. And the subtitle is An Engineering Approach to Worthy Performance. So I got some really good nuggets out of that, such as when I'm working with leaders, determining what is the potential for improvement if we do improve this performance. And does the effort required outweigh the costs that are involved, an ROI approach to doing things?
0: Yeah, I had some great books right there. I'm sure there are many more, uh, but we had Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Advantage by Patrick Linceleone, Dare to Lead by Renee Brown, and Human Confidence, which is an oldie, but a goodie, as you mentioned. Competence. Competence, human competence. Got it, thank you. Um, Last question, Michael, for anybody listening who's looking for a way to accelerate their career get to that next level, um, maybe become more of a thought leader like you in this space, what's uh, one more piece of advice you would give?
1: So one of the things that helped me really early on and throughout my career is to have a mentor. And I know that a lot of people talk about this, but I also know a lot of people don't actually do it. I've had uh, senior leaders at organizations that I've partnered with, and I've had people that were at a lower level than me within organizations. That I've partnered with, and they have mentored me and helped me develop capabilities to really expand my skill set. The other thing I'd recommend, besides having a mentor, which is really powerful, is that take responsibility for your own development, explore what's out there. There's such a wealth of information out there. Without spending a penny, you could learn so much about our profession. There's so many great podcasts, such as yours. Yep that are out there that you could learn. I mean, every podcast of, of yours that I've listened to is, I've just taken away so many things. In fact, the Liz Wiseman podcast, when I was listening to that, I actually stopped so I could get a pen and paper and take notes because Liz had such great things, such great nuggets that I, that I took away from that podcast.
0: Love it. Thank you for that plug, Michael. And there are a lot of great resources out there. And if anybody wants to listen to my interview with Liz Wiseman, I think it was episode 65 And uh, that's available on the podcast, a classic. Liz, of course, is the author of Multipliers, which is a major bestseller. Tons of great research has gone into that. And I also run a program, a simulation based on that book. And Liz Weissman is going to be the keynote speaker at the conference that I'm hosting later this year, the Talent Development Think Tank in November. So if you're a fan of Liz and you want to hear her speak, you want to meet Liz, uh, you definitely want to come to that one. And if you want to get in touch with Michael, Uh, Where is the best place for them to do that, Michael?
1: LinkedIn is a great resource because you can always contact me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty open to invitations on LinkedIn. I've got uh, quite a few people that I'm connected with there. Uh, Sixth Rent-A-Car. It's michael.sabag at sixth.com. Feel free to reach out to me there. Um, I haven't quite nailed the carrier pigeon or smoke signals <laughs> form of communication yet, but I'm working on that. We'll, we'll stick with email and
0: LinkedIn. Awesome. And if you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, make sure that we do connect. I'm posting content daily. Love to connect with you and hear what's going on with you. Michael, it has been great to hear about your experience, what you put into this uh, great book, which again is called... Developing exemplary performance one person at a time, and it's available on Amazon. And of course, you can connect with Michael on LinkedIn. Michael, thank you again for coming on the Talent Development Hut Seat.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's always a pleasure talking with you.
0: All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. slash community, and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know, and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development HOTSEAT. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible, and we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.